Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Lord, it is your faithfulness that enables us to make the commitments that we make in our lives. We know that ultimately any hope of our own faithfulness rests on your faithfulness toward us. So grant us the faith to lean on you in everything that we decide in our lives. Everything that may have been committed to you over the course of this weekend, um, we look to you to sustain us and help us to be true to the things that you have called us to. We just really pray that Harvest would be a church that is characterized by disciples who are called out into this world to bear a burden for your kingdom desire to see the fame and the glory of Christ being made known in the Chicagoland area and beyond. So put that fire within the heart of each person here in this place today and enable us to represent you well to a world that is dying and lost and in need of your salvation. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's hard to believe we're in the sort of wrap-up time of the retreat. Um, Back in my uh, college days, pretty much all the retreats we did were kind of like three-night, four-day affairs. But it um, feels like in this season of life, that's just an impossibility. And so these retreats just happen so quickly. But I've really enjoyed my time with you. Uh, not just the opportunity to preach here, but just a lot of some of the more casual conversations I've had an opportunity to have with you, whether it was in the cafeteria or just walking around from the dorm and back. It's been great to even get to know some of you a bit better. Um, I'm thankful for the worship team, being able to sit under the worship leading of Reggie again, and so really appreciate that as well. And uh, just excited about what God is doing even in our network with Thrive and just looking to the future, uh, knowing that you guys are a sister church to Emmanuel and just seeing how uh, God is growing that work in Flagstaff, Arizona, and um, looking at that house church in Pilsen and just thinking about the other things that God is in store for us as a network in the years to come. And so really praise God for that. Uh, I want to recognize that the message that I preached last night was a bit heavy. And as uh, Pastor Dave pointed out in the prayer time, um, I'm not suggesting that we're able to or we ought to help every single person that comes across our path or that there are absolutely no limits to the extent of the help that ought to be offered. Uh, There is a wisdom in recognizing healthy boundaries. Um, There is only one Messiah, and you're not him, okay, in other words, okay? Um, So we can't have a Messiah complex about trying to help people. At the same time, I don't want to focus so much on these qualifiers, that we end up robbing Jesus' teaching of the radical call to love others. We have to remember that Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to these religious leaders who domesticated God's law in order to justify their own lovelessness. And they did this by so narrowly defining the term neighbor 
that it only included those they wanted to love, those who were already in their inner circle, their friends and family. But when we truly received and understood the love of God for us, we are empowered by that love to love others, even those outside our inner circles, even our enemy. And that love costs. It costs a lot. Um, the theme of this retreat has been 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But we have to remember that in that same chapter, Peter also wrote in verse 21, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What we can say is that the cross of Christ was a one-time historic event that is unique in history in that it purchased salvation for anyone who put their trust in him. But as Peter points out, it also becomes an example, a model of the kind of selfless, sacrificial living that all of us as his disciples are called to emulate in our own lives. And that's a very weighty burden, isn't it? It's a great challenge to that that can bring any of us to our knees. And it's in light of the heaviness of this call to discipleship and the call to love in the way that Christ loved that I want to close this retreat with this message that comes out of the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And it reads, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Or that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name. Because my name will be great among the nations. Says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. By saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. Says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name to be feared among the nations. For this last message, I want to go back to a time in Israel's history 
when worship wasn't going so well. I want to go back to the time of the last inspired prophet of the Old Testament era, a man by the name of Malachi, who prophesied to the Israelites during one of their low points in the nation's history. Worship was going on in the temple. These sacrifices were being burnt. But the truth was, the heart of the people was not in it. They were basically just going through the motions and offering what God required, and they were bitterly complaining the whole way. The Israelites were complaining because they were required to give a perfect, spotless animal. The best in their herds. And I I don't think I personally really got this until I lived in Africa for five years and was among those who raised animals and recognized that when you have that perfect animal, that's your breeder. That's the animal that you want to use to raise the next generation of animals. And the thought of killing that animal would be unthinkable to a sheep herder, a goat herder. And so the thinking began to just rise in the hearts of these Israelites. Why does God require such costly worship? Why can't we be like the pagan religions? They get to sleep with temple prostitutes to worship, you know? Like, they have a good. Why do we have to kill our best animal in our flock all the time? And so Malachi starts by addressing the primary problem, which is this attitude toward worship in the heart of the Israelites. Before saying anything about the sacrifice itself, God addresses the heart. God always examines the giver before he examines the gift. That term, what a burden, could be translated as how wearisome, what a nuisance, or maybe in more modern parlance, what a drag. And I think the truth is that's the same attitude that exists in many churches today when it comes to our worship. I think, unfortunately, there's this insidious mentality of consumerism that has really infiltrated the church so that we come to church and we see ourselves as the one that are there to be entertained. And what's happening on this stage is the entertainment, right? And so as consumers, you come and say, well, I hope they put on a good production for me today because it took me 30 minutes to drive out here, right? And you say, dazzle me, you know? And you rate the quality of the worship band and how good the musicians were and you rate the quality of the message and say, ah, it was okay, it could have used a few more stories, I think. Or I didn't feel like Pastor Dave was quite as prepared as he usually is. And there can be this attitude like, I'm the one that's here to be catered to in this worship service. And when we find worship boring... As a result, we blame the production and we shop around for a church that has better production value. Let me say this. Anything you do half-heartedly is boring, okay? Anything you do in your life half-heartedly is boring. I hate cutting the grass. I find lawn mowing incredibly tedious and boring, and so I do it half-heartedly. I also hate washing dishes, okay? I find it incredibly boring, and so I do these tasks half-heartedly. I don't do it with a smile. I just get through it so that it's done, 
okay? I find no pleasure in them. It's all burden to me, okay? But here is the danger, is that worship can be treated in the same way. Walter Kaiser says this, members of a church will sit through three to four hour operas, lengthy symphonies, or marathon sporting events, and rejoice both in the event's length and its substance. Put those same people in the house of God for just one hour and they fidget. They complain, too, if the word of God is still being expounded upon for more than the anticipated half hour, right? That's a pretty tough indictment against the church. None of you grumble that the Super Bowl lasts for like five hours, right? You relish it. But asked to worship for five hours, and I think you would revolt and say, what kind of church is this? This is a cult? And I just want to start by asking you the simple question. How is your attitude of worship these days? Not just the moments when you're sitting in a sanctuary, but when I say worship, I'm talking about the sum of your entire life before God. If you're serving in a different capacity or volunteering in a different way, what is your general attitude? Do you do it with joy and thankfulness? Or do you enter into worship grumbling with a complaining spirit, giving your bare minimum? Having addressed their attitude, God turns his attention now to the sacrifice itself. Some years back when I was on a short-term trip to Africa, I was riding in a pickup truck with a missionary that was hosting us. And we were down in the southern part of Kenya in an area known as Maasai land, basically cow herders. And while we were there, um, these Maasai men, about five of them, were waving us down on the roadside and asked us to pull over. So we did. And there was this cow laying there on the ground. And uh, it was clearly a sick cow. And it was sort of just, I never heard a cow cry before, but this cow was crying. It was just going, just making these sounds that I didn't know cows could make. And it was just thin. It was down to its bones. And these Maasai men said, this cow is very sick. And we were trying to bring it to the slaughterhouse before it died, but it is too sick to walk. Could we put this cow on your truck? And could you help us bring it to the slaughterhouse? So, you know, among the six, seven of us, we actually managed to pick this thing up and throw it onto the flatbed of the truck. And we drove it to the slaughterhouse. And the whole way, I was thinking, maybe if a cow is this sick, it shouldn't go to the slaughterhouse, you know? (laughs) I could not eat beef in Kenya a long time after that, you know? Um, But the truth is, I think this is the kind of animal that the Israelites were bringing to the temple. They promised God the best of their flock. But when it actually came to bring the animal to the temple, they looked around and they saw that three-legged one with the fleas and it's blind. And they dragged that thing half dead to the temple and they gave it to God and said, Lord, my best. And God says, you're not fooling anyone. 
And I, I could understand the logic of that, you know, because if God is really concerned with the heart, then it's the thought that counts, right? Not the actual gift. So what does it matter what the actual animal is as long as the heart is in the right place? And God says, it just doesn't work that way. And the way he point calls them out on it is he says, would you even dare offer an animal like this to your earthly leaders, to your governors? You wouldn't. You would be embarrassed to do that. So why do you do that with me? Why do you think it's acceptable to give me a gift that you would be too ashamed to give anybody else in your life? None of you would dare demean an earthly leader with a gift like this. Imagine if you're a husband and you want to buy flowers for your wife's anniversary, but you're a bit of a cheapskate. So you go to the florist and you look at the prices of a dozen roses, long stem, and they're ridiculous, right? I used to be able to buy a dozen long stem roses in Africa for $2, all right? Um, and so you say, man, you know, I just don't want to spend the money. Do you have something a little less expensive? So the florist kind of gives you a strange look, but he says, yeah, we've got these, you know, weak old ones that are kind of withered, and we're going to, you know, probably get rid of them soon, and they're half off. So if you want them, they're yours. You're kind of looking at them, and you go, half off is still a little pricey for me. Do you have anything else? And Floris is like, that's all we have, man. That's all we have. So you go to the back alley, and you look in the dumpster, and you find the flowers that were just thrown away. And you give these to your wife, and you say, happy anniversary. Now, you say, honey, it is our anniversary. I don't know how much you love flowers. But I also need you to understand that it's the thought that counts. So happy anniversary. Is there any woman here at Harvest that would accept this from your husband? I don't think so, right? I think you're in for marriage counseling if this is what you bring back to your wife. Our outward offering ought to reflect the inner heart. They go hand in hand. And here is the unfortunate truth is that whether we're talking about our time or our energy or our money, I think the truth is we often have this leftover mentality. Is I take what I want and God can have the leftovers. Whatever doesn't cost me anything, whatever doesn't inconvenience me, whatever I could do without, whatever I could lose and not notice, God have free reign of that in my life. But don't touch this stuff that actually matters to me. This is off bounds. This is not your property. Throughout the Bible, we see this message, though, that true worship must cost us something. There's this great story at the very end of the story of David where he takes a census at the end of his life. In all of his life, he had trusted God to experience victory in battles over against overwhelming odds. It was never about the numbers. It was always about God's presence with Israel. And yet, toward the end of his life, David's insecurities get the better of him, and he decides to take a census of his fighting men. And even his generals recognize how wrong and messed up this is, and so they implore David, don't do the sin against God. You have never counted your fighting men because God was with you. Don't do it now. But David is stubborn in his old age, and he refuses to listen. He says, I am the king. Count my armies. And so they do it. And at the moment that he hears the numbers, his heart is crushed with guilt and he realizes he has sinned with God, sinned against God. 
And God sends a destroying angel to start killing the Israelites. But even as the punishment is being inflicted, the heart of God is broken and he relents. And he happens to relent in Jerusalem, right at this place, which is the threshing floor of this man named Aruna. And so this is the passage that ensues in light of these events. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. It's interesting. If you really try to break it down to his essence, I see no biblical reason why David could not have accepted Aruna's gift. What would have been so wrong? After all, Aruna is one of his subjects and David is the king. And why not give Aruna an opportunity to participate in this worship? Share a bit of the wealth a little, right? Share a bit of the credit. What about common courtesy? Here is somebody giving you a gift. Isn't it rude to turn away the gift? I don't see anything in the law of Moses that would have prevented David from receiving this gift. But regardless of whatever valid arguments they may have been for David to receive the gift of Aruna, I think David understood that there was a more important principle that trumped all of them. I will not offer a sacrifice to my God that cost me nothing. David understood that by its very nature, a sacrifice to God must cost us something. I think Jesus affirms this principle in the New Testament when he highlights the gift of the widow in Luke chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Why did Jesus showcase the offering of the widow? Well, he explains why he does so. He said, everybody was, all these rich people are showing off how much they're giving, but the truth is they're all giving out of their leftovers. What doesn't hurt them to give, but this widow in giving these last pennies gave till it hurt, gave sacrificially, gave something that cost her something. And so Jesus takes note of that sacrifice. I'll go even one step further and say true worship is not only costly, but will even appear wasteful to those who don't understand what's going on. 
John chapter 12, verse 1 to 5, we see this interesting story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of, those, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. There was a protest. This is too much. This is ridiculous. I think the truth is when people see the kind of sacrifices given to God, there is this almost gut-level reaction like, it's too much. That's going too far. That's a little extreme. I had heard some years back of this legal settlement that happened in a church uh, with a particular church member. And it was a wrongful death suit, and the family won the suit. And they were awarded millions of dollars in the settlement. And what I heard was, they took that multi-million dollar settlement and they gave it as an offering to the church, their local church, and to a handful of other missions that they were already supporting. A hundred percent of it. Now, um, here's the thing. I wish I could tell you that my response to hearing that testimony was, hallelujah, but it wasn't. Because in all honesty, like, so that family had a mortgage to pay. They were still paying down their house. They also had kids that were in college. They were still trying to pay through college expenses. And in my heart, even though I'm a pastor, I cringed a little, okay? I thought like, oh, man, like, that's a little extreme, you know? Like, why not pay down your mortgage, pay off your mortgage, and put aside college money, and then give what's left over to the church. But when I witnessed that offering, I thought like, that's too much. That's too much. But I think that's the power of a gift like that to God, isn't there? There's an ability of an offering like that to God to shake the very foundations of our own life and cause us to ask Who in the world deserves a sacrifice like that? And I think that gets to the heart of the matter. Why does God demand such costly worship? Well, I think one of the things that we see in this passage is the cost of the sacrifice reflects the worth of our God. You find it everywhere in this first chapter of Malachi. Verse 6, where is the honor due me? Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You see, what God is saying is ultimately, the problem with you Israelites is that you don't grasp the worth of the God that you worship. What God is saying is, what are you declaring about the way you see God's worth, by the quality of your sacrifice. It's always interesting to me to hear what people boast in, 
brag about. You know, like, uh, oh my goodness, that is the most amazing Korean barbecue. You have got to try that place. You have got to be kidding me. You have never watched that show before? Get on Netflix now and watch the whole season. It will change your life, right? What's happening when you talk like this? What you're actually doing is you're glorying in the worth of those things, right? In other words, you have deemed them worthy of your praise. And so here is the question. What does your worship say about the worth of your God? Verse 10 says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. There is this very dangerous mentality that we can get into thinking like this. Well, I have to give such a costly sacrifice because God needs it. And that's a very dangerous logic. God says, I don't need it. I don't. Psalm 50, verse 9 to 12 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. God responds to that mentality, I don't need anything from you. So then, why does God require it of us? I think this is where we see a very strong witnessing component to worship. The world will know of the greatness of our God by the passion with which he is worshipped by his church. That's why he calls the offerings of the Israelites useless worship. Because you're going through the motions, you're burning the animals, but it doesn't accomplish the whole purpose for which the sacrificial system and the temple were created. Because people were supposed to see that worship of the Israelites and be drawn to it and say, what kind of God is this that is worthy of this kind of sacrifice? Who is it that can command this kind of cost? But when you see a lame, blind, dirty, flea-bitten animal being offered... What God is in essence saying is you have made a mockery of my name to the nations. The other nations laugh at me because of what they see in your worship. And so he says, these are useless fires on my altar. Because the whole point of this is to let the world know that there is a God that is worthy to be worshipped like this. Whether you realize it or not, in every decision you make in your life, there is this mental cost-benefit analysis going on in your head all the time, isn't there? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? That's what you're asking yourself for every decision. Is it worth it? And I think what God is saying through this prophet Malachi is what you need to do is ask yourself, am I worthy? Am I worthy of that? The response to God's call to costly worship is not about bearing down and trying harder. Listen, I recognize that probably everything I'm saying up to this message is just feeling like I'm putting one stone on top of another on your head. Saying, thanks for sending off us, sending us off from this place, feeling so good about ourselves, you know. 
So we can all go home and flagellate ourselves and say what horrible worshipers we are. Listen. What if you realize that your worship is pretty half-hearted? What if the truth is you are complaining a lot and grumbling about the sacrifices you feel you have to make as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to say this. If our sacrifice is to reflect the worth of God, then we must behold his worth again and again. That's the answer to half-hearted worship. Not buckling down and saying, I'll try harder. It's about once again being confronted with the worth of God that captures your heart, wins your spirit. You see, the less we think about God, the more we focus on the cost of the sacrifice. And the reverse is true too. The more we see of God, the less we think about the cost. There's this interesting transaction in Exodus 33 between Moses and God. And as he's leading the Israelites, Moses has had enough. Every step of the journey, the Israelites have been rebelling, turning against God. And Moses had to add to act as the middleman in this whole constant confrontation between his people and God. And so he's up there in Mount Sinai meeting with God, and he comes down and he discovers they built this golden calf, and they're worshiping it and saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And you get the sense that Moses is saying, I've had enough, you know. In verses 15 to 18, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So once again, Moses has had to intercede and intervene and play middleman to his people. And then at the very end of this dialogue between God, Moses says something that sounds totally out of the blue. It's like a non sequitur. But it makes total sense if you really understand what Moses is asking because he says, then Moses said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. I think what Moses was saying was not just, I want to see your glory, but I need to see your glory. Because I think in Moses' heart, I think he was weighing in that cost-benefit analysis, it's not worth it. When you called me out of that Midian desert to lead God's people, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And I think the truth is, after all this battle fatigue, fighting against these people, Moses had had enough. And I think he turned to God and he said, show me your glory. Remind me who you are. And let me be reminded that all of this is worth it. Show me your glory. John Piper says this. The really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. If you stand at the Grand Canyon and your only thought is, I am great, something is messed up with you. Do you understand that? Why do people vacation to the Grand Canyon? Because there's something awesome about standing before something that great, isn't there? 
There's something breathtaking about being reminded of your smallness in a place like the Grand Canyon. And I think that's what worship is all about. Standing before the Grand Canyon of God's majesty and soaking it all in and reminding ourselves how small we are and yet how great God is. Show me your glory, God. Remind me why I even started in this race in this first place. I'm telling you this, brothers and sisters. There is not enough strength to finish this journey unless it is marked by recurrent moments of apprehending the glory of God again and again. Being reminded of the one whom we serve, that he is worthy of everything we could lay down at his feet and offer to him as a sacrifice. And I'll close with this final thought. We not only hunger to behold God's glory, but long to participate in it as well. In other words, it's another way of saying we were all created to be worshipers. And as a result, we instinctively praise greatness when we recognize it. It's woven into the very fabric of our DNA is to hunger for greatness and to celebrate it. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis journey through this discovery of God's glory, where he says when he would read these incessant calls in Scripture to praise the Lord, it really bothered him. He said that it felt like God was like this middle-aged woman that was needy and begging for compliments, right? Tell me how beautiful I am. Tell me how good-looking I am, right? His literal words were the soundings of an old woman's compliments to herself, okay? This is actually what he thought of God when he kept saying, praise me, praise me. Until finally a light bulb went on in Lewis's head where he realized the essence of praise and how it related to the glory of God. Reflecting on Psalms, Lewis writes, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously flows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, we indeed cannot help doing with everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely an expression of it, but completes the enjoyment. It's not just somebody fishing for compliments. But there's something as I participate in that worship and participate in that praise is meeting the deepest longings of my own soul that craves for that glory. I don't know how to explain the sports fanaticism in this country except for realizing that we were made to be worshipers. I'm going to argue that the entire multi-billion dollar sports industry in this country is an overflow of the fact that we were made to be worshipers. We just don't know who we're supposed to worship. Growing up here in Chicago, I, you know, going to Bears games, Sox games, Cubs games, whatever, there's nothing 
like those moments of being in the United Center when Michael Jordan was being announced. And are any of you old enough to have been there live to watch a Bulls game when Jordan was playing? Some of you are, right? You know that Alan Parsons Project music starts coming on, lights go out, and you hear, you just, everyone is waiting for that moment, right? From North Carolina, at guard, six foot six, Michael Jordan, and then the entire place just goes insane. And just, this is just a regular home game during the regular season. And everyone is clamping and stomping their feet and screaming to your horse. And what I realized was this in that moment is we're not only praising the glory of Michael Jordan, but we're participating in it. We, we're actually a part of that glory of Michael Jordan by being from Chicago. Like, that's the only way I can explain why you wear jerseys to the game. Have you ever thought of how dumb that is? Why do you wear a jersey to the game? You're not on the team. It's not like Derrick Rose is going to go down and go, hey, coach, look, I got the number, you know, like, put me in, put me in. You're never going into the game. So why do you wear the uniform? Because by wearing the uniform, you feel like you're a little part of the team, don't you? Right? That's why you see this scene all the time. Now, I know looking at Rose, it's a little painful right now. Okay? I understand that. Okay? But this is why every time the players leave and enter the court, you see fans reaching out and just trying to touch the players. So stupid if you think about it. Right? Why do we do that? Because there's something in us that longs not just to see glory, but to participate in that greatness. C.S. Lewis says this, We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. There is something inside every one of us that longs for glory. And what the Bible tells us is that was put into you by God so that you would become connected with Christ and find the fulfillment of that longing for greatness and glory in him and him alone. And this is what the Bible says. If we acknowledge God's glory through our sacrifice in this present age, We will share in his glory in the age to come. Romans 8, 17 to 18 says this. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray. I suppose some of you feel a little burnt out of the Christian life, maybe burnt out of serving at Harvest or burnt out of volunteering at these different ministries and missions that you're a part of. I'm going to guess that some of you actually, if you were really honest, would have to say, my attitude toward worship is pretty stinky. You know, uh, 
The truth is, I'm going through the motions, but I've got a lot of complaints brewing under my heart. And the truth is, what seems to come to the forefront, what takes center stage is the cost. Why does God demand so much of me? Why does he ask so much? And I'm going to tell you this, that the reason that's so is because you don't see God clearly. You don't understand the beauty of his word and his majesty. The answer, you know, here's the thing. I see it in my own church is when you get into this burnt out state, I think a lot of times the mentality is I need a break. I'm going to resign from this ministry. And maybe in wisdom there is an appropriate time for taking a break. But here is the God's honest truth as a pastor for a couple decades now. When I see my own parishioners come out of a break like that, They don't often come back better. They don't. They don't come back more refreshed and ready to serve. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. They often come back resigned never to serve again. Just taking a physical rest is never the full solution to a burnt out spirit. The true lasting solution is to behold the worth of the God that we worship again and again. Maybe your vision of God's worth has become a bit blurry. And all that you think about is what you're doing for God. If we're going to be the ones who are called out to live differently in our generation, the question is this. Are we lighting useless fires of half-hearted worship to God? Or when somebody comes to Harvest Community Church and they see the worship going on in this place, does it catch their attention? Does it cause them to say, Who is this God that these people worship that is so great that these people would lay it all on the altar of his sacrifice? I want to get to know that God. I want to know who he is. Like I said, you can't just muscle through this. You know, you can't just grit your teeth and bear down and say, I'll try harder. I think maybe for us, as we close out the retreat, The prayer needs to be the prayer of Moses. God, I am so sick and tired. I cannot make it another day through this. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Remind me of those early days of my faith when I was so passionately in love with you, when you were so much larger than life. And all I wanted to do was think about what else I could give to you. My younger days when I was a college student, or whatever, whatever that season of your life was, when nothing felt like a sacrifice because God was worthy of it all. Maybe your prayer this day could be rekindle that heart to see you clearly. Say, you are worthy. You are worthy. Would you just make that your prayer this morning and just offer that to God? Say, God, reveal yourself to me. Show me your heart. Let me know your worth as we come before him in prayer. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.